This is an ABC podcast. Hello, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Eggie Dubol, your host here on a Monday morning. Hope your weekend treated you well. Uh, today on the show, we hear from Solomon Islands Foreign Minister on the hopes of what a treaty signed with China will have on its country. Solomon Islands and China reached an understanding to establish a comprehensive strategic framework that aims to achieve our national development strategy and the 2030 agenda through these transformative initiatives. And how a new initiative to establish a Pacific Health Information Hub will benefit our Pacific countries. And for Pacific Island countries to be able to focus on their own particular priorities in being able to strengthen this infrastructure um, as part of this digital health transformation. The rates of cervical cancer is also high in the Pacific, but a special program rolling out into the Pacific may save many lives. More on any of these stories can be found when you simply type ABC Pacific Beat into your search engine. Feel free to share these across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, at the start of the year, the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese received a warm welcome in Papua New Guinea as he pledged that the two countries would develop a bilateral security treaty. It's supposed to clarify the future of joint security efforts, like the redevelopment of the Lombrum naval base on Manu's Island. But as PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports, the mid-year deadline has passed and negotiations are still dragging on. When we think of getting ready for bushfires or other disasters, equipment and emergency personnel might spring to mind. But the federal government's keen to make sure energy, transport and other sectors are also involved in the planning. Tanya Barden is the CEO of the Australian Food and Grocery Council. Any adverse weather event, whether it's flooding or fire, can put enormous strain on communities and sometimes you'll get those broken lines of being able to get goods, particularly into some of the remote and regional communities. Um, and then with supply chains, you can sometimes get some breakages where you're not able to get the produce to market or the produce itself may be affected by the weather conditions. While the pressures from the COVID pandemic and other fires and floods have eased, she says planning is the key to curbing future disruptions. I think the main thing for us is thinking longer term rather than just about this summer. And we need to make sure that we have policies in place that support a strong food and grocery manufacturing industry. We also need to make sure that governments are providing support to organisations like Food Bank to help people when they're in that crisis situation. And in terms of the short-term preparation and preparedness, we need to have open communication. We need to have good collaboration across the supply chain. And she's optimistic that industry can respond quickly to help areas hit by disasters. Australia has a very networked transport system, a very networked food and grocery manufacturing system, a lot of diversity in it. And where there are disruptions, they tend to be short term in nature. And there's a lot of substitutability of products for consumers if it does emerge that they're unable to get a particular product that might be affected by weather. 
The Federal Minister for Emergency Management, Murray Watt, is confident the nation is bushfire-ready, although he concedes some eastern parts of the country haven't been able to do all the planned hazard reduction. I've been in rural Victoria myself a couple of months ago speaking to volunteer firefighters who were saying that when they were trying to do hazard reduction burns, their boots were just sinking in the mud. It was still so wet. So that has made it difficult in some parts of the country. Another concern is aerial firefighting support. Last week, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Commissioner Rob Rogers renewed calls for a national aerial firefighting fleet. Senator Watt says it's something the federal government's working on. We now have one more large water bombing plane at the national level that we did uh, heading into Black Summer. And a couple of the states have also acquired their own heavy water tanker planes as well. But in addition, we'll have more large helicopters available this year for water bombing than we have in the past. So all up, we're looking at about 500 aircraft that will be available across the country ranging from large planes to large helicopters and smaller aircraft as well, which means that we've got actually more uh, aircraft available for firefighting than we've ever had before. The bushfire summit will continue tomorrow. Apologies there. We will have the correct uh, story come through later in the show. As we head to the US President Joe Biden, who will host a summit with Pacific Island leaders this week, where climate change, economic growth, sustainable development, public health and illegal fishing will be discussed. The US will officially recognise Cook Islands and UF for the first time at the meeting. But one of the region's key leaders, Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasseh Sogonvare, will be absent after he snubbed Joe Biden's invitation. Instead, Mr Sogavare's office says Foreign Minister Jeremiah Manele will be attending the Washington DC talks in his place. Mr Sogavare is already on his way home to Honiara following his address at the United Nations General Assembly in New York where he praised his country's relations with China. We applaud the People's Republic of China for the initiative in accelerating the implementation of the 2030 Agenda through the Belt and Road Initiative global development initiative, global security initiative, and global civilization initiative. During my discussions with uh, President Xi Jinping in July 2023, Solomon Islands and China reached an understanding to establish a comprehensive strategic framework that aims to achieve our national development strategy and the 2030 agenda through these transformative initiatives. And Solomon Islands Prime Minister also condemned Japan's recent release of treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Solomon Islands stands with like-minded Pacific Islanders and is is appalled by Japan's decision to discharge over a million tons of treated nuclear wastewater into into the ocean. We note IAEA's assessment report is is inconclusive and that the scientific data shared remains inadequate, incomplete, and biased. These concerns were ignored. If this nuclear waste is safe, it should be stored in Japan. The fact that it's dumped into the ocean shows that it is not safe. The effect of this act is transboundary and intergenerational, and is an attack on global trust and solidarity. So the message is clear. Our lives... Our people do not matter. And that was Solomon Islands Prime Minister Manasi Songavari speaking at the UN General Assembly in New York. And we've yet to see a response from the Japanese government to Mr Songavari's statement.
Now, one Pacific leader who will be attending uh, President Joe Biden's summit is Tongan Prime Minister Xiaosi Sovaleni. Mr. Sovaleni says climate change will top the list of topics to be discussed in Washington, D.C. And he's explained to ABC's reporter in Tonga, Marin Gupu, on what he expects will come out of the three-day meeting. We will be meeting uh, uh, tomorrow with the president. And, and of course, one of the main issues will be not just for Tonga, but for the Pacific will be climate change. We would like to support in uh, advocating uh, for some of the issues that we believe is important, including the loss and damage uh, and the fact that we would like to actually uh, start up a, a regional fund for the Pacific because we are having a hard time actually getting uh, funding from some of the global facilities. And we're just hoping to see whether there are better ways of providing uh, assistance, uh, not just for Tonga, but for the Pacific. Uh, we will also be discussing you know, strengthening our relationship, given that we have now an embassy in Tonga. Uh, look at some of the uh, potential uh, bilateral uh, relationship with USAID. And, and, and so forth. So there, there's going to be a, a range of issues that we will be raising and discussing with the president. In your speech to the United Nations at the General Assembly, you raised the problem of drug trafficking and borderless crimes. How can the U.S. assist with these types of problems? Uh, we, we simply don't have the resources to actually police and, uh, and, and patrol uh, our areas, and, and I'm pretty sure the same thing applies to the other Pacific countries. And, and I think uh, a regional approach with the assistant, given the resources and the assets that the United States have, will actually go a long way in actually, uh, you know, addressing and mitigating, uh, these, these issues that we have, you know, uh, facing in the Pacific. Uh, you know, we're talking about IUU, we're talking about illicit drugs. And all of that, I uh, I believe that you know our cooperations between United States and and the Pacific uh, will help uh, in reducing uh, uh, those issues. Tonga is uh, one of the countries that's going to sign a new high seas treaty at the UN. What benefit would this bring to Tonga and the Pacific? Uh, we will be uh, we will be joining that. We we do believe that it's an important uh, treaty, especially given uh, the effect of climate change, uh, you know, with the sea level rising, and that will be uh, something that most low lying islands uh, would be keen, I, I imagine, to actually join. And that was Tonga's Prime Minister Xiaosi Sovaleni. Pacific Beat. Well, now recapping our first story, at the start of the year, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, received a warm welcome in Papua New Guinea as he pledged that the two countries would develop a bilateral security treaty. It's supposed to clarify the future of joint security efforts, like the redevelopment of the Lumbrum naval base on Manus Island. But as PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports, the mid-year deadline has passed and negotiations are still dragging on. 
Amid the rain and tropical heat of Manus Island, Australian and Papua New Guinean defence engineers are constructing a school at the Lombrum Naval Base. It's part of the long-running annual exercise Puk Puk. Here's ADF Captain Helena Soriel. The best thing about it is you're working with the PNGDF in their country, experiencing their culture, and you're doing real-time tasks. The Lombrum Naval Base looks very different to a few years ago when it was home to an Australian immigration detention centre. Australia and PNG are now hoping the joint redevelopment of the operational quarters of the base will help facilitate better cooperation between the two countries. Here's ADF Lieutenant Nick Trotter. It's all good to have a... an agreement between nations at that national security level. But unless you've also got the people-to-people links and you understand each other genuinely... then it's not, it doesn't work as well. The base's commanding officer, Booney Doria, agrees. It's like bringing us together, building that relationship, making it more firm and strong, you know. Australia's defence cooperation program with PNG is the largest it has with any country. Recognising the need to create a legal framework for current and future activities in the region, like at the Lombrum base, a bilateral security treaty was announced earlier this year. Negotiations were meant to be finished by May, but it hasn't proven easy. In June, PNG's Prime Minister James Marape said he felt the proposed wording of the document encroached on the country's sovereignty. Yesterday, he said it's important the treaty is legally sound. We have a national constitution and our country's laws to comply with. So uh, ensuring that the the treaty that we will sign is is, uh, legally compliant on our side as well as it's legally compliant on their side. It was hoped the security treaty would be finalised before Saturday's annual Prime Minister's 13 Rugby League clash, but it wasn't, and neither PM was there. Instead, the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Pat Conroy, was representing Australia. He told the ABC he believes there are just a few issues to still sort out. We're hoping to conclude negotiations shortly, but I'm not going to put a specific month on it. It, it, The important thing is to get it right. To, to get an agreement that supports the security and sovereignty of both nations, and I'm confident we'll get there. This is Tim Swanston in Manus Province reporting for AM. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, Timor-Leste and China have signed a new strategic partnership following a meeting between the leaders of the two countries. The enhanced partnership includes security and will see military exchanges between Beijing and Dili. It comes as Timor's negotiations with an Australian company over the Greater Sunrise Gas Fields continues. The ABC's Kathleen Calderwood with this report. China put on an opulent display to impress world leaders in attendance as it opened the Asian Games. And Timor-Leste's Prime Minister couldn't help but join in on the fun. But his visit also cemented a new deal with China, Shinana Guzmao and President Xi Jinping forging closer ties between the two countries. China is willing to continue working with Timor-Leste on the journey to modernisation and upgrade bilateral relations to better benefit the two peoples. A joint statement gave some details of the new comprehensive strategic partnership, which will include high-level military exchanges, Timor-Leste agreeing to oppose Taiwan independence and the prospect of cooperation in oil and gas exploration. 
China always supported Timor-Leste when it was in the difficult times of war. We always keep China in mind. It's unclear how this might impact negotiations between the Timorese and Australian company Woodside over the greater Sunrise Gas and Oil Fields in the Timor Sea, believed to be worth up to $65 billion. But Timor-Leste's president has previously warned that if Woodside wouldn't have the gas pipeline and processing on Timorese soil, the country could look to China. They are very interested in... uh And they even told me uh, they are very interested even to be the sole partners. And while China and Australia's relationship continues to stabilise, the Agriculture Minister rejected a new bid by Beijing to package up a number of key trade disputes as a way to stop Australia going through the World Trade Organisation over wine tariffs. We see that as entirely separate matters. Uh, We will continue our WTO case when it comes to wine and we will continue to defend the case when it comes to steel. Uh, But we hope that all of these things can be resolved by dialogue. After a successful outcome to have tariffs on barley lifted, the Australian government appears set on sticking to the same process for wine. And that is ABC's Kathleen Calderwood reporting. Up shortly, we'll have your news wrap with producer Carl Evans. You've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. This year marks 60 years of the Pacific Games. To celebrate, ABC Radio Australia invites you to be part of our Pacific Games storytelling competition. Did you volunteer when your country hosted the Games? Maybe you were in the crowd when Pacific Sprint Queen Toya Whistle won triple gold. Or perhaps you were part of an opening ceremony and want to share your experience. Games are your games, and we want to hear your stories. Successful storytellers will be mentored by ABC professionals and have their stories featured on ABC Radio Australia, as well as our socials in the lead-up to the 2023 Pacific Games in Solomon Islands. And you'll be paid for your work. Head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific to enter. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region to see what is the latest with our news wrap, of course, provided by producer Carl Evans. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Aggie. I'm well. How about yourself? <laughs> I'm good. Do you have a good weekend? I did. Unlucky for the poor old uh, Warriors, though, in the NRL. Ah, don't remind me. <laughs> Still up the wires. Uh, look, let's get into our news wrap. Uh, authorities in Donga have intercepted an illegal shipment of firearms. Goodness, uh, firearms sorry, what happened? Yeah, so uh, a 56-year-old customs officer has been arrested Arrested um, after customs intercepted nine rifles, three rifle scopes, two shotguns, one pistol, and more than 400 rounds of uh, of ammunition. So the contents had actually been consigned uh, to him personally, who was a customs officer, who was a customs officer themselves, I should say, um, and, and had been shipped from the US and was actually picked up when the shipment was put through an X-ray scanner. The goods were then detained, uh, and the importer, yeah, like I said, who, who was a Customs officer himself was then taken uh, into questioning. So, yeah, pretty pretty concerning stuff there, Aggie. A little bit crazy. But uh, I suppose, has a court date been issued then? Yeah, so not as yet, but I'm sure that's not far away. Uh, police have confirmed that investigation.
negotiations are still ongoing at this stage. And uh, and look, and given that in some ways it was one of their own, uh, who, who was responsible for this? You'd like to hope that it doesn't uh, doesn't run any deeper. So let's hope that those uh, investigations can get to the bottom of it. Well, you're hoping that, of course, the, those firearms weren't going to be used for anything bad. Oh, exactly. I mean? so, that that huge element of it as well, yes. Yeah. Uh, look, weekend and sport, as we were just talking about, <laughs> with some consequential World Cup games. How have they played out? Yeah, so oh, not great for Samoa and Tonga, unfortunately, both of whom fell uh, in their respective World Cup matches. Um, Argentina toughed out a convincing 19-10 to uh, win uh, over Samoa to, to actually get their first points of the tournament. Unfortunately, Christian Liliofano had a, had a rough day uh, with the boot and, and did cost his team a, a few points there. Um, Tongan, meanwhile, fell heavily to Scotland uh, overnight, all but ending uh, world, their World Cup hopes, you would think. They lost 45-18 to 18 and, and have another game looming against South Africa, which is going to be a uh, yeah a very tough one as well. Um, Samoa, meanwhile, they're, they're in a bit of a better spot. They, they've virtually got to beat Japan to stay alive, but... The bonus points could also come a factor into the equation there as well, so they they may still get through. Um, for Fiji, uh, the game that could well decide their future uh, <laughs> or is being played right now uh, in Australia versus Wales. And uh, look, great news for Fiji fans who I'm sure are going to be watching this one very, very closely. Last time I checked the scores, which was about two minutes ago, uh, Wales were up twenty nine to uh, to six Ooh. against Australia. So. Yeah, that, that virtually means that all Fiji, I'm assuming Wales are going to go on to win that game. Um, and Fiji really now, all they've got to do is beat Georgia. And that, uh, if my calculations are correct, that guarantees them a spot um, into the next round. And, uh, and God, it virtually means uh, very, very bad things for rugby in Australia as well. I, wow. Yeah, I don't want to be around to... Uh, <laughs> Inside the walls of Rugby rugby Australia HQ uh, at the moment. Oh, but hey, let's see if there is a Pacific nation that can make it. Let's, uh, you know, back Fiji. Uh, and it was a big weekend, though, in Port Moresby with the Rugby League RPMs 13 taking place between PNG and Australia. Who won? That's right. So Australia did overcome them in the end, 30-18. to 18. Uh, But to be honest, Aggie, it was a scoreline that really flattered them a, a little bit. Um, they were only up six in the closing uh, in the closing minutes of the match and, uh, and really struggled. To, uh, to to break free of PNG, um, PNG actually scored first uh, uh, um, after the Australians literally fumbled a ball on their own goal line, leading to, uh, to, no name, to a no name McDonald try. Um, they did hit back uh, pretty soon after with tries to Talungi and Hudson Young to regain control, but uh, but a try in the second half to PNG really kept the minute. Um, for a second there, it looked like uh, Justin Holbrook might get off to a fairy tale start, but um, yeah, unfortunately Australia's class did shine through in the end. But look, prop. To uh, Papua New Guinea, um, Australia fielded an entire squad of uh, of guys who'd played Origin and World Cups and things like that. Whereas you know PNG side was mainly you know mainly made up from guys who, who played Host Plus Cup with the PNG Hunters and a few others. So yeah, really great effort from them. Love it. Thank you very much for always providing us the latest. Uh, that is producer Carl Evans with our news wrap.
Now, Australia is pushing for a digital transformation of the Pacific's health sector, and to do so, it will establish a so-called Pacific Health Information Support Hub. The initiative was announced by Australia's Assistant Minister for Mental and Rural and Regional Health, Emma McBride, at the Pacific Health Minister's meeting in Doha last week. Ms McBride told the ABC's Dubrovka Volata that non-communicable diseases like diabetes and obesity were high on the meeting's agenda. It's a common problem that that we share and I've had the chance to visit two health-promoting schools um, whilst I've been here in Tonga and have just returned from the Bula Adventist Primary School and they are, as part of, through Tonga Health, are being supported by the Australian Government through DFAT and to see the real practical difference that these programs are making within local schools, um, to see a school playground that is supported by the Australian government, um, vegetable gardens which are being used in teaching children about healthy eating and nutrition and those children then taking that back to their families at home. So Australia does have a shared interest in reducing the burden of communicable diseases and it's something that is a strong focus of ours and many or all of the Pacific Island countries and, and we are already working in collaboration with them through uh, this this program and, and many others of it focused on reducing this burden of disease. In places like Tonga where you are currently and Fiji, methamphetamine and other drugs are a growing problem. So in the health sphere, what could be done to help? The particular um, addiction and dependency is something that is a problem that are faced by by many people in in most countries. And I think the first thing is treating them as a health issue and having a health response. And that's something that we've made progress towards in Australia. And it's something that I know that um, from from the interventions that I've heard from the Pacific Island countries, that that's the sort of approach that that they are adopting and something that I think is is the most effective response, um, treating addiction and dependency as health issues or health conditions, and then responding through education, early intervention, and the right kind of treatment and support when people need that care. Now, one of your responsibilities is mental health. In the Pacific, this is often an under-resourced space and countries struggle to deal with it. What can and should Australia do in this space? We know that some of this burden of disease has been introduced through the impacts of, of climate change and, and we visited a part as part of Tonga that had been impacted by the tsunami and, and the volcano and, and hearing from a person who personally had experienced this and, and, and the distress that's impacted them and their family and it's something that Australia through working to build health system resilience will help to reduce that distress that particularly is being felt by young people but also other people in the community and it is something that there are particular still um, stigmas that persist um, in Pacific Island communities and in Australia and I think but that's something that here um, they are making progress towards but something that still needs to be addressed First, the stigma of mental ill health um, needs to be reduced. Um, Then people can then have the right kind of intervention and support. And the hospital that I visited, the Viola Viola Hospital, um, does have a mental health inpatient unit. And as a person with a background as a mental health worker myself, it's really encouraging to see that sort of clinical support and care. But we need to really make sure that there's reduced stigma, the right kind of early intervention and identification, and then the right clinical support um, if it's needed. 
While your meeting was on health, climate change is an overarching concern that also has health implications. Was climate change part of the discussions? Climate change was probably one of the most significant focuses of the discussion, particularly through the focus on strengthening health system resilience. Many Pacific Island countries spoke about the significant impact of climate change, the increasing severity and frequency of natural disasters, including tsunamis, and the real impact that that is having on the health and well-being of, of their communities. And something is that being part of a new Australian government, I was very pleased to reaffirm Australia's strong position on uh, on action on climate change, on on taking responsibility as part of a, a development partner in the Pacific region that was very much welcomed by the other delegates from the Pacific Island countries to see that shift um, from the new Australian government and that real strong emphasis that we're placing on it domestically, but also taking our responsibility seriously within the region. You are also supporting a digital transformation in the health sector. What benefits would this have for Pacific nations whose population are often remote and dispersed and whose health sector is often struggling to make do? I was very pleased on behalf of the Australian government and with my with my colleague, the Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, to be able to support this announcement of a Pacific Health Information Support Hub. This is part of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade through the Partnerships for a Healthy Region initiative. And this initiative overall is investing $620 million over five years in high-quality health programs across the Pacific and Southeast Asia. The particular program that I was able to announce at the Pacific Health Minister's meeting yesterday is of this Pacific Health Information Support Hub. And we know that, especially through the pandemic, that the underlying vulnerability of health systems, of health data, was exposed. Also, the risk of and safeguards re required to be able to accurately capture, store um, and analyse this data. And what we know that this will prove would be significant benefits through the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, our government's agency for information and statistics on Australia's health and welfare, to be able to provide more robust data in real time to be able to inform discussions and policy decisions on how health funding is directed and for Pacific Island countries to be able to focus on their own particular priorities in being able to strengthen this infrastructure um, as part of this digital health transformation. And in terms of um, countries being much more prepared or ready um, for future um, pandemics or, you know, infections, disease outbreaks that they may face. And I was very pleased on behalf of the Australian government to be able to announce this, this strong investment. And this will be done in collaboration because we know that the best solutions are local solutions and really to build the capacity of the Pacific Island countries and to strengthen our collaboration with them. One issue that keeps cropping up in the Pacific is limited connectivity, which has improved in recent years, but internet and mobile networks have yet to reach everyone. To overcome this divide, are we talking about satellite internet link like Starlink or other options? There are a range of different responses um, that different Pacific Island countries had taken. Um, some were using VSAT um, and, and other satellite technology. For some of them, it was very new. But it's something that is front of mind for all of the Pacific Island countries' health ministers. But also a strong point that came out was the interoperability um, and that it needed to be across 
um, finance, across health, across education. And, and for some of these countries, it's very much emerging technology. For others, it's a bit more mature. But all of them agreed that it was something that was such a strong priority to be able to, to gather data, to be able to safely store that data um, so that patients have confidence in the security of their health information and for clinicians to be able to have that data at their fingertips when they're making decisions uh, about health interventions, but also at a population level so that countries can be much better informed by much more reliable data about where the best investment will go or need to be directed uh, in order to be able to boost their the population, um, the, the health of the population overall. And that is Emma McBride talking to Dubravka Volita. In the Pacific, rates of cervical cancer are high, but access to screening and treatment can be difficult. One group of volunteers is trying to make that less so by rolling out a special program to test women for HPV, which is a virus that often causes cervical cancer. The group were in Fiji recently, where they tested hundreds of women, potentially saving their lives. Marion Farr spoke with gynaecologist Dr Nicola Fitzgerald in asking what exactly is HPV. HPV is a virus that causes warts in some circumstances, but also um, is the virus that causes pretty much all cervix cancer in the world. It also does cause some other rarer cancers as well. We know that there's a long period of time between people getting HPV and getting a cancer. And we also know that most people who get HPV will not have any long-term problems from it most people's immune system will clear this infection um, before it causes them any trouble. For a small percentage of people, they, for some reason, they don't seem to clear the virus and long-term HPV infection seems to increase people's risk for getting cancer on the cervix. You were in Fiji recently delivering specialist cervix cancer screening to women. Um, what Tell us about that and why this service is so important for women in the Pacific in particular. In Fiji, which is a pretty, I guess it's more of a middle-income country compared to most of the other countries, there's still not a widespread screening program for cervix cancer. Um, traditional cervix cancer screening is um, done by doing a normal pap smear and that requires someone who's really well trained um, to look at the pap smear and then it also involves getting the result back to the person who's had the test and both of those things can be really I guess really challenging uh, in the Pacific environment. Tell us a little bit about this um, sort of outreach screening program that you undertook and how, how you went about it. One of the things we wanted to do was to improve the access um, of the women to the test and also to decrease the chance of them getting lost to follow up in the meantime. So our test involves doing something slightly different to traditional pap smear screening. Our test involves doing a HPV test, which is a rapid test that we do on the spot and trying to encourage women to hang around until the test is performed and that we can give them the results. And then we encourage them to stay for a follow-up examination and then treatment for the infection if we, if we can do it on the day. And this has meant that we've had a lot of women who've been able to access testing and treatment. So hopefully that means we've been able to to treat a lot of women who otherwise may not have been treated. I understand about 300 women were tested during this outreach. How many of them returned positive results for HPV? Our positive test result was um, just under 17% um, and then 25% of them 
came to see us for a further testing and then underwent treatment for their abnormal cells. What would have happened or what could have happened to these women if if those cases weren't detected? I guess it depends on how proactive the women are. So in Fiji, they can access traditional pap smear with the local um, clinic nurse, but there's not a kind of a regular screening program. So the women do need to be a bit proactive in asking for it. Potentially, some of those women may not have been able to access treatment. So hopefully we've made it a little bit more accessible for those women. Is there anything that women in the Pacific can do to protect themselves from contracting HPV or getting cervix cancer? The best thing that we can do at the moment is to encourage vaccination. And HPV vaccination is actually really successful and is definitely going to be the answer to solving this problem long term. Um, The main problem with HPV vaccination is that it works best when women have not become sexually active. So it's really important for girls to access the vaccination in high school and that women who unfortunately have already have missed out on getting the HPV vaccine before they became sexually active, they don't seem to see the benefits. Yeah, so the best thing that you can do is to encourage the younger population to get vaccinated and to um, certainly reassure the adults in the community that it's a really safe vaccination, which it is. Now, you've sort of been rolling out this, you know, incredible service in Fiji. Are there plans to deliver this type of um, screening in other Pacific nations? That's a great question. (laughs) From my point of view, I would absolutely love to. At the moment, there's not a coordinated government program in any of the Pacific Island countries, as far as I'm aware, to roll this kind of program out. We've been doing a little bit of it in Fiji, but um, at this stage, it's not doesn't seem to be on the agenda for the Fijian government to roll out population-wide. And I appreciate there are some economic and definite logistical issues with doing this, but it will need to be adopted by the, by the local governments for it to be effective, unfortunately. <laughs> and so is that what you would be calling for, I guess, in, in a bigger picture sense for, for governments to adopt this type of screening across, you know, across their countries? Yeah, it would be fantastic. And certainly the idea is gaining momentum and there are a lot of people who are involved in trying to get this kind of program rolled out amongst the Pacific countries. And that's Dr Nicola Fitzgerald, gynaecologist from the Pacific Island Cervical Cancer Screening Initiative, speaking with Marion Farr. Pacific Beat. So how did the tree snail get from the United Kingdom to French Polynesia? No, it's not a joke, and the answer to that question is it was flown there on a jet plane. And not just one snail, but thousands of them were recently relocated from an English zoo to a volcanic island in French Polynesia. So joining me on the line from London is Tyrone Capel, Whipsnade's Zoos Invertebrate Specialist. With that I say welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Tyrone, for joining us. Look, let's start with the why. Uh, Why were thousands of tree snails flown from the UK to be resettled all the way to French Polynesia? So the partridge snails, the ones that we sent over, are extinct in the world in uh, parts of the French Polynesia. So the project was basically to return the snails back to their wild habitats and return them back to the wild and subsequently attempt to try and turn them from extinct to no longer extinct, basically. 
Yeah, why was it important for them to be reintroduced, though, Tyrone? So um, in the, well, for many, many years, the snails were a huge cultural significance. Um, lots of shells in the early days, so in the in the 50s, 60s and 70s, were collected and used as jewellery. So uh, traditionally, um, necklaces were made from um, old parts of the shells. And these necklaces were given as gifts, as welcome and as thank yous to uh, family members and people that meant a lot to people. So um, the snails themselves have a lot of cultural significance um, because they were used for hundreds of years in this way. Um, so to be able to return them back to the, the country where they have that cultural significance is, is rather really important. And they do play a really important ecological role as well as the cultural role that is um, with yeah. the French Polynesia. Wow. I mean, these snails were like wiped out, I think, as you had referred to, about maybe 30 years ago. Like what actually happened to them? So it was it was a chain of events, unfortunately. So um, the joint African land snail was introduced to French, French Polynesia for um, various different reasons. And unfortunately, they kind of got out of control. Um, these snails, joint African land snails, are quite big. Um, and what happened was is they introduced another snail to try and control the joint African land snail called a rosy wolf snail. And this is a carnivorous snail that eats other snails. Um, so the idea was that this rosy wolf snail would eat the joint African land snail. But instead of that, it basically ate all the little ones to extinction. Um, so on top of that, a, uh, an invertebrate called a flatworm was also introduced at roughly around about the same time. And this also eats on snails and ate a lot of the small parts of snails to extinction as well. So they basically got absolutely spearheaded um, by lots of predators that weren't native to the French Polynesia. And subsequently, the little snails didn't stand a chance. But luckily, um, ZSL and other organisations stepped in in the early, oh, yeah, the late 80s to recover as many species as physically possible. And we're now at the point that we can start to return them. Yeah, fascinating, because if they weren't there, what happens to the ecosystem? So the ecosystem would struggle in some areas. So you would start to get um, build-ups of potential fungal material on leaves and on plants, which then may cause other diseases to occur on the plants. So without that constant grazing from the snails, you may get other issues with the plants, which would then potentially um, cause disruptions to your forests, which then can obviously have a major knock-on effect onto the rest of the environment. I, I know most people are probably familiar with just your everyday garden snail, but what's the difference to these uh, snails that are being sent back to French Polynesia? If I'm honest, not a huge amount. The only thing that is very different is these are very specific to that region. So they're probably sitting around about the same sort of size as your thumbnail, and they really do vary in lots of different colours and shapes and sizes. Um, but the majority of them sit around about the same sort of size as your thumbnail. And as as the name suggests, they're tree snails. So they live up in the trees rather than in the bushes on the ground, uh, like your general garden snails. But they do roughly around about the same job. Uh, they do the same um, part in the in the in the wild as your garden snails. They're just a little bit more special um, because they're just so endangered. Beautiful. Now you were responsible for this latest batch of released snails. I mean, can you maybe take us through the the process of of how that was actually done? I mean, did it take hours to release these snails? Uh, it took a little while for the snails to move away, but for <laughs> the actual release, it was quite quickly. Um, so what we tend to do is put all the snails. It sounds. I, I wish it was more scientific, but it's really not. It's quite simple. Um, you pop them all in a plant pot with some moss to keep them nice and moist, and you attach the plant pot to the tree. 
And then what happens is they slowly climb out the tree, uh, out the pot even, up the tree uh, to get to a nice vantage point to get themselves nice and safe, normally underneath a leaf. And then what we do is we sit out overnight um, for about 18 hours and we monitor them and see how they're progressing, where they're going to, um, and subsequently um, how fast they're traveling away and basically being re-released, if you like. So it can take quite a little while for them to get away. But our job is relatively quite quick. I'm intrigued as to, did you even have to sort of practice or have rehearsals of how to release them? Or was this just a straight off the bat, let's go and do it? It is straight off the bat. I wish there was a little bit of rehearsal. It would have been a bit easier. But no, there's, there's, it's a very fail-safe um, procedure. It's been happening quite a few years now. Um, and there's been lots of trials that have gone on in previous years, um, in the 90s, that have allowed us to get to this kind of point where we know um, the methods that work really, really well. Uh, was there any sort of challenges you, you guys face there? I mean, to be able to fly them over, I mean, it, they must have to eat something along the way. <laughs> uh, actually, no, they don't eat anything on the way. We we put them into sort of like a, um, a slight hibernation state um, just to make sure that they travel really safe um, and basically they, they don't move too much in travel. So we drop the temperatures down ever so slightly and we keep things a little bit drier than they potentially are used to and it just means that they sort of sit inside their shells nice and tight keep nice and comfortable and then we rehydrate them get them nice and warm uh, and humid um, when they arrive um, we keep them uh, in little containers for a, a couple of days just to make sure they're all okay give them some food then and then they go into those released plant pots ready to go attach the trees and off they go how do you know or will know if this relocation is successful though tyrone so what we will be doing, not us personally, but we have people in the field already um, that will be going to the release sites every single month. And they'll be looking at the number of snails that there are there and also subsequently how many shells they're collecting. So all the snails that we release, they're all marked up with blue paint. Uh, they're marked up with a UV reactive blue paint. So the guys will be able to go out with a UV torch, shine it on the ground, and hopefully all the snails will glow either in the tree or on the ground. Um just if just if a couple die, that, that that is to be expected. There will be some losses. These snails don't live forever. They're not as long lived um, as some of of the of the other animals as you may expect. Um, but the success that we sort of gauge it by is if we find wild born newborns and juveniles, and particularly if we can find some adults that have been born in the wild. And we know it. This is successful because when we went out there this time around in September, we'd found um, some of the snails that we released in April. Um, still in the wild and they'd actually given birth to babies um, in the wild so we know this works and what we're doing now is bolstering those numbers up to get even more babies coming through being born into the wild and hopefully get us to the point that we've got a wild population in either Tahiti, Moria or of the other islands in the French Polynesia. You've been tuning into Pacific Beat with myself, Aggie Dubo, speaking to Tyrone, Whipsnade's zoo's invertebrate specialist on the relocation of snails to the French Polynesia. Uh, I believe the process of releasing snails has actually been going on since 2015. Uh, how did it all come about? I mean, was it the French Polynesia government that was seeking help from from your team? It was a real mixture. It's been a real team effort. So obviously, I must have to say, obviously, I'm sitting here talking to you about all the, the lovely stuff. It, there's been, it's a huge team effort. So, yeah, we have the environmental agency, Dirian, that are based in Tahiti that do all their side of things. And then obviously you've got the likes of ZSL, um, uh, the Zoological Society of London that sort of oversee the projects. But there's within that, there's lots of zoos. So there's zoos in the UK and Europe and America that all breed these species to, to help them come out. But it has been a huge team effort for many, many years. Uh, and in particular, it's been 
sort of there's three four people merely really spearheading this there was trevor coots who's one of the field researchers you've got um justin who is um one of the main people from the iucn and works with cambridge university you've got paul Piss kelly who uh, was one of the people that worked originally to help get these populations into captivity and also dave clark who was one of the first people to look after them at zsl and has subsequently got us to the point that we can now start to release these snails back to the world so it's been a real big old team effort from people in the french polynesia and also across seas as well i have to i have to ask tyrone would this be a career highlight for you yeah for me personally yeah it is um it's it's what we always aim for. Um, a lot of people question whether zoos have their roles and, and what roles they play. And this is a really good um, highlight of what our role is. Is Sometimes, as you know, this has been going on from the 80s. It's taken 30 years to get to this point, but it does work. And for me to be able to say that I've been involved in that and arguably release species back to the wild for, for the first time in 30 years is, is, a, is a really big achievement. Um, some of these snails I've personally looked after for two years and then to take those snails and put them back to where they belong is, is basically why I work um, for for zoos and, and, and involved in conservation. So, yeah, it's a massive highlight for me in my career. Uh, Tyrone, look, we really appreciate your time this morning. Very insightful, really interesting uh, to learn about these snails. And uh, hopefully we get to catch up with you again. But thank you for your time. Not a problem. It's nice to speak to you. No worries. That is Tyrone Capel, an invertebrate specialist at Whipsnade Snoo in London. What's it like for those on the front lines of science across the Pacific? Come find out on our new series, Pacific Scientific. Join us for Midnight Hunts. Put those one right there. <laughs> I didn't even see that one. Trek to remote villages. Is there someone giving birth? Yes. And climb up volcanoes. We're standing seven metres above where your home was. Get a glimpse of scientists' lives across the region. Pacific Scientific, Mondays at 3.30pm PNG time, right here on ABC Radio Australia. Hey, this is Nairi. Pacific Break is back. And this year, I'm one of the judges. We're on a mission to find the most talented unsigned artist in the Pacific. So if that sounds like you, send us your original track. You could win an all-expenses-paid, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to perform at Woe Adelaide Festival in Australia. Entries are open now. Head to abc.net.au slash pacificbreak. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. But stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though. News is next. Coming up after that is Nisha Daly. And we'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation.